Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, before we get to Jeremy Courtney, let me tell you about Missions Resource Network. There's a ministry that has followed God's particular leading the last year or two to focus on working with others to care for displaced Muslims around the Mediterranean Rim. This ministry has cast vision and helped develop collaborative strategies among churches and missionaries for the exciting opportunities God has created in the Muslim world. This ministry is Missions Resource Network. If you don't know them, their work is to help disciples make disciples worldwide. And they do this through working with churches and missionaries globally. Uh, MRN, Missions Resource Network, is here to provide coaching, preparation for missions, missionary care, and to share learning on almost any question you have. Check them out. Their website is mrnet.org. That's mrnet.org. Check them out. And now to our first ever guest from Iraq. Mr. Jeremy Courtney, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, as we just discussed before we hit record, uh, you're from Austin, Texas, which is a... I mean, I would have had you on way sooner if I would have known that. <laughs> I, uh, I grew up there. Yeah, that's where my folks are still. So I, was, I wasn't born there, but that's where I spent most of my time growing up. It, so your family is still in Leander? Mm-hmm. Outstanding. Well, um, all right. Well, next time you're in town, we'll have to go get some torchies or chips and salsa somewhere. Absolutely. And uh, so you go to Baylor uh, for grad school, is that right? That's where I went, yeah. Where'd you do undergrad? Uh, a small central Texas school called Howard Payne University. Oh, yeah, yeah, Howard Payne. Outstanding. Um, okay, I'm trying to figure out where to jump in on this. So y- you grew up as a Texas kid. Um, you're, going, you're getting your, your MDiv, I guess, at Baylor? Yeah, it was a uh, that was the that was the degree, but it was more of a global studies sort of approach to things, intercultural stuff and things like that. Okay, uh, so you're getting a graduate degree. Your wife, uh, she's there in in grad school as well. Yeah, she was uh, on the Baylor business side of things. Okay, so you're both there in grad school, and then does nine eleven happen or the Iraq invasion happen right? While you're in grad school? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, 9-11 actually as well happened right first couple days of that, that very first school year, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was my junior year. when. Ha- so you're two years ahead of me in school. So it happens while you're in seminary or grad school. Grad school, and yeah. Obviously that changes the direction of your life, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, the whole... The whole future was ahead of us. We didn't have a lot of commitments. We had a clean slate in many ways, and life could have gone a lot of different directions. And I think, uh, as with many guys my age and just a little bit younger, a lot of people my age, uh, it was a cataclysmic event. A lot of people signed up for the war. Um, And I think, in a lot of ways, I was signing up for that as well, I just ended up kind of going through a, a different channel, but I think a lot of the most motivation was, was actually very similar. Yeah, the same motivation that you want to do something. Um, what made you choose this path? So the way I understand it, like you head over to Iraq to do like a ministry of presence. Um, what makes you go that direction into like the more common route of like joining the armed forces? Well, I didn't... Uh my grandfather was in the service, but my father wasn't. And so it was sort of 
sort of skipped a generation. It wasn't a huge part of our family culture. Um, there wasn't an expectation that I would do anything like that. And perhaps uh, in as much as my grandfather had gone on to become a pastor, my father was a pastor, um, maybe there was even an unspoken expectation that, uh, I don't know, that, that I would do vocational ministry, so to speak, or, or pastoral ministry or something like that, kind of in the family line. Uh, but more than anything, I, I think I just um, couldn't immediately reconcile following Jesus, who says that we're supposed to love our enemy with with the more militant approach to life. Um, I don't say that really from a critical place. I just I don't I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't know how to reconcile those things. It wasn't a foregone conclusion to me that um, it would be okay to take up arms and go kill our enemies, uh, whether in the name of national security or retaliation or bombing them back to the Stone Age or whatever. Um, and so I think once that option was taken off the table, it, it kind of became a question of oh, what then shall we do if, if we're not going to kill them, uh, what, what options are left to us to respond but it was all about, I, I think now this many years removed from it, I, I see us as being uh, very much a part of the war on terror. Um, a lot of people who signed up for to be missionaries or church planters or business people in the Middle East or any number of different things. I think for a lot of us, it was all about the war on terror. It was about protecting ourselves. It was about eradicating terrorism. Uh, and I think for many, many people, it was actually about eradicating Islam itself. It was about eradicating Muslims, even for many of us. Hmm. So do you see your, how do you see yourself involved in the war on terror if you're not taking the traditional route of, you know, a, a gun or a grenade? Well, to be clear and to be sure, I don't think any of us were that on the nose about it. Yeah. Um, but at a, at a deeper level, I think there was sort of this compact among Americans that we all knew this is somehow what we needed to do to overcome, what we needed to do to survive, what we needed to do to be unified. Um, there was a fairly common refrain around the days of 9-11, which went something like, if we do X, Y, Z, this, that, or the other, then the terrorists win. And the, everything was then geared toward, postured toward making sure that the terrorists didn't win. And so I think we were a part of it for those nice Southern Christians who, uh, I don't know, I think we, we, have a, we have a schizophrenic faith and we have a schizophrenic country in a lot of ways. It's, I don't, I don't say that condemningly. It is what it is. We we have a hard time knowing what to do with a Christian nation in a Christian mm -hmm. nation, a so-called Christian nation. And so, where where I came from, we we flew the flag in our Sunday services and we sent our troops off to war um, 
with a lot of patriotism and we, we really christened the war effort. We, we christened the killing of our enemies, which, which hadn't traditionally been at, at the best of things, at the best of our history, it wasn't really the Christian way. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was a way certainly for Christians to be involved in the kingdom's war efforts, but, um, but what I interpret as the best of Christian history didn't really christen such things. It, it maybe gave place for the repentance of such things, mm-hmm. um, a, a sort of mourning that we would have to go out and kill our enemies to protect the state. But it's what we must do. Now let's come back and be reintegrated into society. Instead, we had a much more complex relationship between the church and the state. Um, especially in those days following 9-11, where the church got very much involved, I think, in, I think the church got engaged in the war on terror itself, partly through the militarization of our members, mm-hmm. and then partly through the, the missionary efforts, where, whereby we sought to eradicate Islam through ostensibly more peaceful means. When the war breaks out, you can't reconcile, you know, picking up arms with the teachings of Jesus, so you don't go into military. Uh, after being over there for years now, is it like a decade or so that you've been there now? Is that right? We've been overseas, yeah, going on uh, 13, 14 years. We've been in Iraq for over 10, almost 11 years. Okay, so you've been in Iraq over a decade. You've seen some awful things uh, that many of us can't imagine and seeing the effects of ISIS and seeing the effects of um, just a- a- atrocious a- activity, do you find yourself more calcified towards the commitment to not pick up arms, or do you ever find yourself going, you know what, we can't fix this this way, l- l- let's just take an, uh, an action that we could see getting rid of something in a quick way? Yeah, I'd, I'd say I see things much more... more complex and nuanced than I did 15 years ago, seven, 16, some 15, some 16 years ago now. Uh, things were a lot more black and white then. I was 21, just married, um, deeply engaged in a, a heady philosophical, theological kind of environment where everything was pretty ivory tower. Um, step out of the ivory tower and see ISIS coming for you for your city, for your friends. And, you know, it all gets real, real fast. And so, yeah, I'd say I have a much more balanced or delicate relationship with violence now than I, than I did when it was all just ivory tower talk. Yeah. Uh, I think, sadly, I think we've often left ourselves with no way out but to kill our way out or mm-hmm. to, to try and kill our way to safety. Um, I, I don't think we had to end up in this position. I think there are some, some egregious things that, that we have done as Americans. We have done as the West writ large. We have done as Christians or the church. Obviously, I think as it relates to Islamist terror, you know, I think those people bear their own, their own responsibilities as well. But, um, I don't think we should gloat over 
our enemies. I don't think we should kill and then beat our chest about it. I don't think that's the appropriate response. Um, so if we must kill to protect others, then we should do it. And we should, I think, be, be mournful on some level that, that we've painted ourselves into these corners and these are sort of the heights of our imagination that we can't find other ways that we don't have more people showing up on the front lines to risk laying their lives down peacefully. The only people who seem to be willing to go to the front lines and help are, are often those who are willing to go strapped up with guns and tanks. Um, so we need them to go because if they don't, then we have hundreds of thousands of more lives, maybe millions of more lives lost. But, but we should mourn that. We should mourn that this is the place we've left ourselves as a church. We should mourn the fact that we haven't called people to follow Jesus and thereby called them to come and die. That's, that we should feel some sadness about the state of things. But I, I do think that we've often left ourselves with no, no way out but these violent options that we now see in front of us. Yeah, you mentioned the... Uh no way to imagine another option. It, it almost echoes uh, Walter Wink's idea that violence is uh, s- a lack of imagination. And yeah, it seems like that's the, the easiest option to pick up and to go to. And so it sounds like, as you said, your, your beliefs have become more uh, complex and maybe a, a strict ad- adherence to pacifism isn't where you are, uh, nor do you want to gloat about violence and power. It, yeah, I, I think that would make sense. I, I can't imagine what you've gone through and what you've seen to get you there. Um, you, you also mentioned that or originally one of the responses is to eradicate all Islam. And your organization, Preemptive Love, talks about how you're not committed to one religion. You have people who are uh, atheists, or, or I think the language was doubters, Christians, Muslims as well. Um, I, I assume, I don't know, I shouldn't assume, but 15, 20 years ago, as someone who was in a Christian seminary, the idea of getting rid of Islam because we're trying to convert everyone to Christianity would have made a whole lot of sense to me. Um, how do you see um, the relationship of Christianity and Islam and not trying to eradicate Islam at this point? Uh, I guess I would just say I haven't even thought about it in a while. It hasn't even crossed my mind mm-hmm. in, in a decade. <laughs> Um, once for me, I, I recognize this is not everyone's experience, but, but for me, once Muslims were no longer an extra abstraction, once Islam was no longer just something I studied in a book, but it, it was the, the air, the atmosphere, the water in which I lived, so to speak, um, it, it ceased to be just words on a page. It ceased to be just tenets and beliefs. It, it was something much more than that. It was, it was the, the norm. It was the baseline assumption. It was somehow not just a religion, but, but the identity, the, the very core of who people are in a lot of ways. And uh, it, it's become a part of my life as a, in a way I'm not Muslim, but I live in a predominantly Muslim culture. And so I'm, I'm aware of it in a way that would either have me railing against it constantly, mm-hmm. uh, or I guess 
on some level accepting it as, as something that is, and then maybe even going to a higher plane of accepting it as something that's beautiful and meaningful and has something to contribute to society, contribute to my life. And so I think that's where I've ended up. I, I don't think of it as a single thing. Mm-hmm. I don't, I actually don't think there is such a thing as Christianity per se. I don't think there's such a thing as Islam per se, because my experience as an insider to Christianity tells me that there's, there's as many different Christianities as I know people in a lot of ways. I mean, there are some basic tenets and basic things that most people hold in common, but, but kind of not all at the same time. I mean, you can get Christians debating over what the meaning of is is and what the meaning of death is and life is and cross and Jesus and divinity and humanity. So, so at the end of the day, I mean, these are super diverse topics and ideas and realities that are subject to a lot of different interpretation. And and it's that way with Islam too. So, so I don't really relate to Islam as a thing as much as I relate to Muslims and, and I, I love my Muslim neighbors, I love my Muslim friends and, uh, I, I want to think mostly in terms of, of of individuals, not abstractions, I guess, and oh. communities, not abstractions. That makes sense. How uh, how is this process of you know being in Iraq for over a decade, being overseas for as many years as you had? Um, uh, obviously, when you're 21 in the ivory tower of you know a Christian university. Um, there's going to be a level of construction, deconstruction, reconstruction that has to happen as you leave that. Um, but doing that in, an, in a context like you're in, what's been the biggest difference in your faith now after being over there for so many years? What I found myself predominantly, uh, I grew up in a fundamentalist tradition in a lot of ways and and in some ways went even more theologically to the right so to speak mm-hmm. um, throughout college and grad school and so by the time by the time I was in grad school or, or just coming out of grad school I was I was about as far right or conservative as as anyone I've, I've ever known hmm. and 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 so in the context of 9-11, with that being sort of my theological worldview at the time, I was just an extremely arrogant, know-it-all um, individual with a personality that is often geared toward leadership or mm-hmm. um, being a challenger, sort of being the boss kind of personality. And so those two things together, I think, were very destructive. To, to a lot of people. I think they were destructive to communities that I cared about. And I think to plop me down in a foreign country with some of the animus I had in my heart in the wake of 9-11 and, and some of that other stuff going on, it just, it wasn't a great fit. Um, I could I could kind of posture and look like Paul the Apostle um, in a way that got me a lot of praise and made me celebrated for being this tough evangelist type. But but at the end of the day, I was looking for a fight and I was looking to be right about pretty much everything. And I had a profound uh, experience early on that that really changed my heart. And um, I would say now, rather than 
having my fists up looking for a fight, I, I've found myself in a more humble posture with my arms open wide, just looking to, to welcome people. Hmm. What are the things that have sustained your faith while you've been over there? Uh, to be honest, my faith has not been sustained entirely hmm. perfectly the entire time I've been over here. I mean, it, it's been a um, not a roller coaster in the sense of like constantly up and down every year or every month or anything like that. But there have been, broadly speaking, over the course of you know thirteen, fourteen years, some some very high highs and some very low lows, and and at times you know, hanging on by a thread kind of lows. Um, so, I mean, I guess in a way that's, that's sustained in the sense that I haven't, I haven't fully walked away or anything. And I, I, I'm very happy with how things are now, but, uh, I just want to be careful to not paint the picture that somehow no, there, there's a, a formula or whatever that's allowed me to just kind of be even keel throughout, throughout these years. Um, but I'd say community, yeah. uh, and not just not just any old community, but a community who's willing to challenge and grow and question and be wrong and and not only repent of acts of sin, uh, so to speak, but of entire worldviews that are off the mark, that uh, of entire worldviews that that bespeak a kind of. Uh, privilege or blind spot or cluelessness about other people and their perspectives and, and how we do harm to others. I, I think that the preemptive love community that's been a part of this thing for the last decade is, is nothing if not a group of people who, who wants to challenge status quo and is willing to, to say we were wrong or I was wrong and, and turn around and walk in the other direction. And so I think it's that particular kind of community that is, been so important to me as I find myself in flux and, and myself changing at times. Yeah. Uh, a few months ago, I, I was at home and uh, I was in my pantry and I was waiting for something and I, I was making a, a smoothie. And so I was, while I was blending out, I, I pulled out my phone and started looking at Twitter. And so the, there's like the usual trivial stuff of you know, sports news and someone had a quote and someone's mad at someone. And then there was this um, tweet by, I think, I don't know what... Maybe Shepard Smith, some some news figure, and it was a video, and I, I didn't read the description. It was just like this bomb site, and it's just like a a dirt road basically. And then someone comes over and wipes off some of the dirt, and it reveals a little girl's face. And I don't know if it was the surprise of it, the the horrendous nature mm. of the image. Um, I, I can't even describe my response to it with words. It was. Um, I literally ended up on the ground making this noise that I've never heard before in my life. And mm. I, I think of that as like one of the, like a heartbreaking experience for me. And when you describe your lows of faith, it seems like you're not watching that on Twitter. Like you're not being caught off guard by someone posting on social media. You're living that. And I would assume for me, like that would be the epicenter of the lows of my faith of having to deal with that on a consistent basis up, up close and personal. Has that been your experience? Well, I'd say to kind of demystify things a little bit, I'd say that um, we 
we get it from various angles. Um, we are still caught off guard on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook sometimes. Mm-hmm. That is how we experience some of these things. Um, we we hear it from our friends in the restaurant or the coffee house or uh, local staff who are getting calls from friends. Um, we hear it from our staff members who are who are calling in from the field emergently with with something immediately in front of them that's dire. And then there are things that that I see myself with my own eyes. I think um, in all of these cases, though, whether it's a, whether there's a little bit of distance between it, like a Twitter or or we're witnessing something horrific for ourselves. Um, there, it, it, it is experienced different because it is just down the road yeah. from us. Uh, it's not in in no event is it you know a, a full ocean away, I guess. But what I think um, makes what I think is surprising about the experience is that when you see something like that and this has been my own experience too, when I am in America for a minute or whatever, when I, when I see something happening back here at home in Fallujah or Baghdad or Mosul or Aleppo, um, I feel helpless if I'm in LA doing an event or if I'm in DC having a meeting, I, I feel helpless. And I, what I hear from a lot of our community is they feel helpless at times and when we're here, which this is where we live on this side of the world, Iraq, Syria, um, we don't feel helpless here. We, we mobilize, we get to action, and we, we do something about these bombings. We do something about starvation. We're doing something about ISIS every day of the week. Uh, we're doing something to put people back to work. So the horror wrecks us, but it never leaves us feeling have the agency to respond. And I think that um, as I've listened to our community over these years, I I think it's the the distance sometimes that you feel from where you sit as you, as you experience these horrible things that it actually makes it harder on you guys in a way emotionally, because you can't, you can't put your hands to it in the same way that we get to sometimes. I would be careful to say emotionally it might be different, um, but uh, experientially it's definitely not um, easier uh, in, from where you sit. It's just got to be harder for you still. But yeah, I, I agree the agency makes a difference. The um, So there's a, a common refrain of um, you know the, the American Christian who sees someone decide to go off and be a missionary overseas. And when the missionary family uh, includes husband, wife, wife, and a husband, and then they have kids, um, you know, the, the first question is, well, is, is this going to be safe for your kids? Um, as someone who, you guys have two kids, is that right? Yeah. Uh, as someone who's been parenting kids who've grown up there, how do you understand the idea of, of safety and parenting in that context? Um. We, so I, I think the the metaphor of the frog in the boiling water is apt. I, I mean, it is. It would be difficult. I don't know if the water is. The water is not boiling across Iraq, even though it was about 100, 
20 some degrees outside today. Uh, the, the water is not equally boiling across the whole country, so to speak. I mean, there are, there are hot spots and then there are normal cities where, you know, you would not know you were proximate to a group like ISIS at all. Um, however, from where you sit in Austin, you know, any family could be forgiven for not wanting back up and move to Iraq right now or Syria right now because it looks on the news like everything is pure out and out chaos. Um, and, and frankly, that's how it was uh, 14 years ago when, when the war started, you know, when we moved in over a decade ago, it, it looked pretty much the same to an outsider. We thought we were moving into pretty much a war zone when we first started considering it. Um, but then you move in and, you know, you, you have a shooting over here or a suicide bombing over there or kidnapping over here and, uh, you start to get used to it and you start to realize that, and you go to the restaurants and you go to the sweet shops and you go buy your groceries and then a bomb goes off and it kills a bunch of people and it's horrible and, eventually life has to get back to normal. And so you go to the restaurants and you go to the sweet shop and you go and, you know, life gets back to normal. And, and so you get a kind of acclimated. That is not to say that these things don't shake the people of this country. That's not to say that they're used to ISIS or used to terror. That's not what I'm trying to convey. But at the same time, sadly, it's not a hundred percent foreign either. And so, uh, what is danger is your threshold for someone that is different if you've been a frog acclimating as the temperature on your water over time versus trying to throw an outsider into the you know in the height of things you're going to want to jump out i don't know if that metaphor works but (laughs) first well first of all my father-in-law who who, like we said, might have been your teacher or something when you were at Leander High School. That's his favorite metaphor. So I think it always works. He uses that quite often. Uh, so I definitely get the illustration. But have there been moments that you thought, you know what, let's get the kids back home. Uh, I, I can work remotely or do something. Have there ever been times you've been second-guessing having your family over there? Um, not from a broad macro uh, sort of macro security conversation. Uh, um, We have always been, I don't think ISIS has ever been more than like uh, officially ISIS armies with ISIS territory, ISIS on the march. I don't think they've ever been more than maybe uh, or, or less than 45 minutes away from us. Um, now our city has ISIS sleeper cells for sure. Uh, we've had suicide bombings in our city. We've had spates of terrorist related kidnappings and stuff like that here and there. Um, but broadly speaking, I mean, it it feels like a normal town. It feels like a place where, where, Um, you know, you you forget even the security forces and the police and, and all these intelligence agencies, they get, they get lulled to sleep on things and they miss things because, by and large, it, it kind of just feels like a normal place to live, not like a place entirely beset by yeah. 
Zionism. And then there's a war that's, you know, an hour away. But the difference in an hour is a big, big difference in a time like this and in a place like this. So, so no, we've never really, from, from a macro security standpoint, no. Now, we've experienced some acute violence, some acute attacks, some targeted things that were about us, that were coming at our family and coming at our kids. And, um, you know, we've been falsely accused and we've had death threats and we've been arrested and put in jail and we've had our security documents, our passports and stuff confiscated and threatened at high levels in the government and other stuff like that. And that has been personally unnerving. And I think in those times we, uh, you know, for moments we entertained what was best for, for our family or for our kids. But, but really in, in the midst of all of it, we've never had a serious conversation. Uh, a serious sustained mm -hmm. conversation about going back to America for reasons of personal security. Hmm. I, I have uh, friends here in Austin who've uh, come over as refugees. Um, a, a lot of people, uh, there's a good constituency in my church that are uh, Congolese uh, refugees. And one of the things that I've heard from some of my refugee friends uh, here in the States is that when the election took place and Trump got in office, they were getting... Uh, messages or phone calls from people back home saying, uh, I guess you're going to get kicked out, you're going to have to go back home. And so there was unrest from some of my friends during the most uh, recent election cycle. Has, has that cycle, has the, the election, the new president, had an influence uh, negatively or positively on, on your work over there? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think politics is often as diverse as the people engaging it and so um, frankly there's a ton of people who love Trump on this side of the world they see him as uh, uh, I mean much like his supporters in America see him as the anti-Obama see him as uh, a fresh start a reboot um, but memories for, for as long as memories can be memories and wishful thinking can also be very short um, the same people who were decrying Trump, or excuse me, the same people who were decrying Bush and wanted him out of office uh, want to Trump or celebrate Trump because they see him as being somehow tough or a cowboy or, you know, hawkish mm -hmm. level. Um, so I, there's not a ton of consistency. I think a lot of it has maybe been related to his talk about Iran. Um, and so some of the Sunni nations around here, or Sunni groups, us, have been happy to see tough talk on Iran. And, and on the other side, um, you know, certainly there are Iraqi and Syrian and others who, who have been blocked or feel fear that they will be blocked from coming to America uh, because of the initial travel even under the revised travel ban kind of stuff, there's still a lot of uncertainty about what is going to bear out there. We've, we've had dear friends who uh, were blocked, actively blocked from coming to America in the initial rollout when there was so much. And that was a pretty horrible experience for them. I think we've, we've seen it on both sides. We see uh, people who are, are very supportive of Trump. We see people who are very, very anti-Trump. Yeah. Hmm. So I've got a good friend of mine in Memphis, Tennessee, named Josh Ross. And Josh uh, had you out to preach a couple years ago, um, 
at his church, Sycamore View, and he told me that um, in the sermon you had a, a picture of like a sunset uh, over Iraq, Iraq, and there's something you did in the sermon about like based on the picture, can you tell is the sun setting or the sun rising? And it was like really a question like what's the perspective on, on what's taking place? Are things getting worse or better? Um, for some, it'd be very easy to go, well, things are clearly setting. Um, and they would almost say, well, let's just forget it. I don't care. I don't want to be involved. Um, how do you not take that option? How do you continue to have the idea that that good work is continuing to happen? How do you continue to have that optimism or the uh, the push to see that it's not just setting, it's rising? Yeah. Um, first of all, I love Josh and miss him. So uh, at the end of the day, it's really a it's a theological gamble for me. Um, it's, it's a theological position. It's a theological conversation. I don't have the worldview any longer that everything is hurtling toward catastrophe and everything is just going to get worse and worse and worse. And then we, then everything burns up and we all go to, mm-hmm. um, I, I can see how you can arrive at that conclusion. I can see why that's comforting in some way, but it, it doesn't work for me. It's not the world I want to live in, and I see too many other options for how we can interpret Scripture, we can interpret what our own hearts tell us to be true, what we experience in the world. And so where I'm placing my gamble, that I'm putting my my chips on the number that says that um, God is engaged right now and we are welcomed into, called into the renewal of all things. That's what I'm, that's what I'm gambling on. That's what I'm betting on is that everything is not actually going to crap. Everything is not about to burn up and be incinerated and into nothingness, but that we're, what we're actually participating in right now, or at least what we have an invitation to participate in right now is the renewal of all things, the reconciliation of all things. And so uh, when, when faced with those two options, the annihilation of all things or the renewal of all things, I, I, I tried to go down the annihilation route for a long time. That was my eschatology. And it didn't, it didn't enhance my life. It enhance my relationships. It didn't lead me to live more sacrificially. It didn't call out love in my heart. The journey where in I join God and the renewal of all things, it just, it makes me and the people around me such better people. And so that's, that's what we're embarked on. We, we, we talk about, uh, this isn't a phrase original to us, but we're trying to make it famous. This idea of the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. That's what we're aiming for um, because it challenges us reminds us that if we think the sun's setting why are we giving up on what our hearts tell us is possible we know that there's there's better options out there we know that reconciliation is possible we know that renewal is possible we know that all these things possible if we just dare to live into them and so uh it's a choice it's, I'm, i don't mean to say that it's a logical certainty or that this is it 
the way the world must be, but I think it's a it's an option for us if we if we choose to go down that renewal of all things path. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm a big fan of the uh, <laughs> that eschatology, uh, the belief of the redemption of all things, the renewal of all things that that God is putting the world back to rights. Uh, so there's a theme I, I feel like I hear as you're talking of like understanding the complexity of it. Like this isn't a certainty. You don't have uh, it's your gamble. Like to use your metaphor, uh, it, it seems like to do like an audacious audacious task like what you're doing, starting this organization, being the president of it. It seems like for some, like you'd think you have to have 100% certainty of exactly what you're doing and you don't second guess, you don't have doubts, you don't have any questions uh, over the legitimacy or your theology. But it seems like you have a, I don't know, almost a, um, an awareness of like how, how complex theology is and how perplexing the world is, but that doesn't deter you from the work you're trying to do. Like, how do you, how does the guy who had like the cocksured certainty of like the super right fundamentalist coming out of school uh, become who you are right now and continue to do your work? Well, I think leaving home is is an important part of transformation. I think that um, we're we're only transformed by great pain and possibly by great love, but. But often the great love that transformed is, is transforming us because it comes part and parcel with great pain. Uh, I think that, that great pain transforms us and, and um, at least has the, it alone has the power to transform if we, if we engage it and we let it. And I think going out journey away from home makes it much more likely that you're going to encounter and be forced to face pain and so that's part of it it's not all of it yeah um but i think setting out on a journey literally a physical journey in which we left almost every thing familiar behind and we're forced to start fresh a couple of times has been an important part of our rhythm um and then Supernaturally as well, I think I had a, I know I had a profound transformative experience that did not align, it, it did not belong in my theology, it didn't belong in my it, it rocked me because it came out of left field and I wasn't prepared for it. Uh, I was the quintessential apostolic church evangelist type. Every day I went out and pounded the pavement and preached the and I was good at it, and I knew all the arguments. I knew everything, really. And I found my face down in prayer, crying out to God, saying, where are you? You're nowhere. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm doing everything right, and, and, and you're nowhere. You're not working. You're not working through me, that's for sure. And face down on the ground in prayer, I, I sort of saw myself in my eye with my fists up like a boxer railing against the creator screaming out praying out crying out and the one time in my life i would say that i i heard back my my prayers i heard a response um the response came because you don't love them 
That's why. Hmm. You're not here. You're not doing anything. Why aren't you helping me destroy Muslims and make them Christians? Because you don't love them, was the word. And I understood that to me. You don't actually love Muhammad, the Muslim sitting across from you at the tea table for who he is. You don't love Muhammad, the Muslim. You love Muhammad, a former Muslim. You love Muhammad, the notch in your belt the guy you convince to become a Christian, the guy you get credit for, the guy you are into Christianity, or maybe even Muslim Muhammad, the guy who rejected you, but at least you get to hold him up as kind of a stiff-necked, hard-headed, you know, rejecter of Jesus. Of Muhammad, the Muslim, full stop for who he is. Uh, uh, Burton has this, this beautiful line about how if, if basically, if we don't love the person on the other side of us for who they are, if we only love the person we want them to be or the person we imagine them to be, if we only imagine, if we only love the, the reflection of ourselves in them, then we don't actually love them. We love ourselves. That was exactly what I was about. And as that word, because you don't love them, I saw myself. I was still face down on the ground, but I saw myself in prayer. In my mind's eye, my fist came down, and I stopped being in this aggressive position, and my arms just opened up into a, an embrace position to be hospitable and to be welcome. And it was like, with with the word, because you don't look, came the power to change, like ice melting around my heart, whatever. And I, back in the real world, I stood up off the ground, stood up from that prayer, and I was I was completely transformed. It was not a gradual process. It wasn't some long arc of sanctification. It was instantaneous. I stood up, and I have never been the same since. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. That is really beautiful. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a, a convicting line. Uh, whether you're overseas or you're back home, uh, loving people for who they are not what you want them to be because that makes them a projection of yourself that i mean that's convicting for all of us um yeah merton's on to something there hmm well jeremy that's been uh this has been good i really appreciate you taking the time uh to talk with us um i'll uh i'll have links to your website uh in the show notes i, I definitely encourage people to check it out but uh this has been a pleasure thanks for taking the time man yeah brother thank you Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.